0: HUE Design Summit returns July 26th through 29th as a four-day unconference created for designers and developers of color, bringing curated conversations and workshops in an environment providing the space and tools necessary to advance in the ever-changing world of technology. This summer, HUE will explore design heritage, past, present, and future, with a special keynote presentation from the legendary Gail Anderson. There'll also be topic-driven fireside chats about the impact of design education and networking Plus, Revision Path is sponsoring this year's event. So for more information about Hugh Design Summit, check them out at HueDesignSummit.com. This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. You've heard of Facebook, right? Huge site, over 2 billion people visiting it every day. But what's it like actually working there? I talked with product designer Steven Song to find out.
1: And you know, there's a really cool you know, thing about Facebook is that you can kind of search and see, like, you know, what are the researchers on Instagram interested in, or what are people in live and video and
0: AR and VR doing? And because everyone's posting about that kind of stuff, and it's really easy just
1: to see, like, in every group, like, who's working on what, it's just a really fascinating place just to kind of tangentially learn about everything that, you know, is going to become, you know, the future of the Internet and the future of technology in our lives soon.
0: Learn more at Facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. This week, Four Winds Interactive is looking for an art director in Denver, Colorado. We also have job listings from indeed.com. So head to the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to apply and to search for any other listings. Don't forget to sign up for weekly job alerts. So when there are new positions added to the job board, you'll get an email so you can be the first to apply. Again, that's revisionpath.com forward slash jobs.
1: You're listening to the Revision Path podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry.
0: Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get to this week's interview, I want to let you know that we just launched a brand new advice column on Revision Path. It's called Ask Saida. Now, Saida Mitchum, she's a longtime friend to the show. You might remember her from episode 27. Uh, she's a designer, she's an entrepreneur, she's a writer. And you know, many of you write into the show with questions. I oftentimes don't have the time to answer those questions but i try to get back to everyone uh, but now saida is here to answer your questions about career choices business advice design and so much more her first column is up on the blog now i'll link to it in the show notes so if you have questions for saida send them to her at ask at revisionpath.com and saida is spelled s-i-e-d-a-h we'll also put that email in the show notes as well we may answer your questions in a future column Now let's talk about our sponsors, Glitch, Google Design, and MailChimp. Glitch is a friendly community where you'll build the web app of your dreams. Whether it's beautiful digital art, handy tools to help you do your work, or a site for your project or cause, you'll find things on Glitch that remind us that the web can still be a fun, creative place full of unexpected surprises. So what will you create today? Get started at Glitch.com. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's leading marketing platform for small businesses. Millions of people and businesses around the world trust MailChimp to publish the right content to the right person at the right place at the right time. Build your brand, sell more stuff, find your people and tell the world your story. Sign up for a free account today and give it a try. MailChimp. Send better email. Now for this week's interview. We're talking to Toronto-based multidisciplinary designer Nuff. Let's start the show.
1: All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Okay, my name is Nuff. I am a designer working across kind of digital branding and recently installation art.
0: Talk to me about some of the work that you're doing right now.
1: Okay, so just thinking today and backwards through the week. So I'm working, I kind of spend about 25 hours a week at a a, a software innovation company. We're working on a television product, so, you know, think Netflix or something like that. We're working kind of the next generation of that. I'm sort of in there doing a little bit of motion design, a bit of UX, and also providing support to their in-house design team. So that is what I think of as my my day gig right now. I'm also volunteering on the design team for TEDx Toronto. Uh, I don't know if I said I was based in Toronto. But, yeah, working on the kind of design for the conference that's going to happen towards the end of the year. And then on the side of all that, I am working on a bunch of proposals and submissions and applications to get some art installations built for a bunch of festivals that are happening over the summer, as well as kind of grants to sort of continue building my own, like furthering my own personal practice.
0: You're doing what sounds like a mix of like freelance work and you're doing some volunteering and things. What is a typical day like for you?
1: 2018 has kind of been... A really interesting year for that. Uh, I tend to tend to start my day with getting all the admin stuff out the way, so all the emailing, client meetings, anything I can do that involves interaction with a person. I try and do that before like eleven thirty a.m. Maybe take a small break, move over, move over to a coffee shop, spend the afternoon in kind of production mode. So whether that's working on, like I said, building out this UI or motion design stuff for any projects I'm working on. Then I kind of take another break. I maybe shift back home or shift to a different space, have a meal. Um, I'm really bad at breakfast, so I try and have a big meal in the afternoon. And I sort of spend the evening working on typically, like this last week, it was um, I was working on a on a movie poster. There's like a, um, a gallery show that's just a bunch of designers making movie posters. So I was working on my submission to that. so it's more of the fun stuff as I get into like the late late night. I'm kind of jamming on that that sort of stuff.
0: So, it sounds like you're doing a lot of like location changes and stuff throughout the day, too.
1: Yeah, I find, you know, shifting location at least once in the day kind of helps me shift mindset as well. Um, it's really easy for me to I have a, a very small office with no windows in my apartment. And if I stay in that office, it's really easy for the whole day to go by and I haven't stood up yeah. from the I haven't had a drink, nothing. And so I try and get out of the house, especially now that the weather is a bit nicer. I try and get up to a coffee shop or up to the client's office or, um, as of next month, I'm going to have a a small, a shared studio with a bunch of friends. So I'll be trying to get up to the studio a little bit more and that's what we'll be doing more of the physical building. So it just helps these kind of mental shifts as much as anything.
0: I mean, physical too. I mean, you know, inertia is real. You can get, I know for me, if I'm working from home, which I do, I do, I work from home, but it's very easy for me to just kind of still be in one place throughout the whole day. I have to kind of force myself to get up and move around. And I just recently got a subscription to WeWork, nice. you know, like this co-working space. I'm going to try to use it. I'm not promising to use it. I got it for free. It really depends on like how hot it is because if I if I leave the house if it's ninety degrees I'm not I'm not yeah yeah exactly
1: <laughs> I mean we yeah, have we have the opposite problem in Canada right where it just it gets too cold and you're like I spent days where I have only there's a grocery store right downstairs I'm in a in a high rise uh-huh. and like in a week there's been days when the only trip out of the at the apartment has been to go get food and yeah it just it just gets really 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 cold and you know then you don't see anyone and you kind of like you look at yourself in the mirror, and you've grown the hobo beard. It's the whole thing, <laughs> um, but yeah, and um, we we have a week work here actually, and I was I was a member for a while until I got this that in house contract, and I had to go into someone's office. Mm-hmm. I found it was really useful. Um, I just had a hot desk, and yeah, it's like this kind of nice. It's almost the same as working coffee shop in that like. You get to, to recognize people just from seeing them over and over again, but you don't work with any of them necessarily. Yeah. And so there's that separation of like, they're not really in your business, they're not really in your face, but you kind of become friendly with people. You can go over and like ask them what they're working on, ask them, you can hallway test the things that you're trying to do as well. So I kind of like that vibe. Um, the WeWork here was really good about throwing events and parties and stuff, which meant that I like to work late. I like to start and end late. And, you know, by 4.35, o'clock, the beers are out, the music's loud. And so it's it's a little bit of a different environment. Interesting.
0: That's good to know. I haven't been to WeWork before. I mean, I've usually just worked out of coffee shops, like a Starbucks somewhere. We have a, a popular chain here in Atlanta called Octane. And I've been, I usually will go to the flagship location. But the, the thing with the flagship location is it's always crowded. You can never get a seat. The good thing is when I had my studio, every time I went there, I got work. Like somebody would see me and refer me to a project or something like that. The bad news is I could never go there to work. It was more like I had to go there to network to find another. Yeah. It was a weird kind of like weird kind of thing. But yeah, you know, no, I, I'm really trying to, like that. you know, sort of get out there and do that because it can be really easy to just sort of get stuck in one place. It sounds like with, you know, what you're doing, aside from just. Going from location to location, you're pretty kind of tapped into the local design community. What is the design scene like for you there in Toronto?
1: Um, yeah, it's, it's it's funny you say that, actually. I feel like I'm a real outsider when it comes to the scene. I've been here, it's going to be three years in July, but the fir- I spent the first kind of 16 months working in the suburbs, like commuting from the city into the suburbs every day for, for work and so i didn't feel plugged in and cuz i didn't go to design school and you know i've worked either at really small companies where i'm the only designer or i never felt like i was part of the the community and it's only been recently let's say the last 12 months where i've started to feel more plugged in a friend of mine kind of runs she she runs the she runs a website called the Toronto Design Directory which is basically like an, an index of all of the agencies and 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 also, like, designers as well and printers and stuff in the city. And she does all these cool events, portfolio nights and, like, gallery shows and pop-ups. And uh, I've been trying to volunteer more at at those things and help review portfolios. And that's kind of how I've met people. And so, yeah, what I can say as, like, a newbie in, in the Toronto design scene is it feels like a lot of it revolves around kind of three or four major employers so you've got Shopify who have a huge presence in Toronto on the tech side and then you've got like four or five massive agencies that you know pretty much everyone has done a rotation through these companies and that's how everyone knows everyone Hmm. so I don't know if it's the same in Atlanta if there's like a few dominant players on the scene but yeah it feels like there's you know there's also um, like two or three art schools that most people, OCAD being the major one, most most of the people I know seem to have come through OCAD and whenever I meet someone, it's like we'll have like 11 friends in common and, and it'll all be people who went to that school or worked at that place.
0: Yeah, Atlanta is pretty similar to that. I mean, we've got Coca-Cola, we've got Home Depot, we have Turner and we have CNN and like those are the four, well, Turner CNN is kind of the same thing, but uh, those are kind of like the big ones that if you've done some design work, it's been at these places. Mm-hmm. Some companies have like direct pipelines from some schools. Like I used to work for AT and they had sort of a direct pipeline from the Art Institute of Atlanta right into that. We have a good number of people that work in some like government facilities because we have the CDC here, so we've got that. And then we have our art schools. I mentioned Art Institute. We have uh, Savannah College of Art and Design campus here we've got a portfolios well it's called the portfolio center but it's part of Miami Ad School right. and they've got campuses like all over the place and then even some of our you know four year institutions have pretty robust design programs mm-hmm. georgia, georgia tech specifically georgia state emory agnes scott the hbcus spellman clark morehouse my alma mater so it's a pretty good mix like that i think in terms of the amount of design in terms of the amount of designers that get put out there, it's pretty diverse, but it does tend to unfortunately sort of sort <laughs> into a few separate like employers and stuff. And we've got big agencies. We've got a DWT, a BBDO, et cetera, here. So it does kinda like filter down into that. It's interesting you mentioned OCAD, actually, uh, someone who we've had on the show, Dr. Dory Tunstall. She's the I believe she's the first female dean of design there at OCAD. Oh, amazing. Crazy, yeah. She, yeah. Just, she just came from uh when I interviewed her, she was at Swinburne University in Melbourne, Australia.
1: Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I think I might have listened to that episode. I'm, I'm, I'm just getting flashbacks of it. But yeah, as someone who didn't go through a design school or kind of go through that, I guess, conventional pipeline, it's cool to see how well supported the design community is. And, you know, all those those big players that I mentioned, they're, they're out supporting all the events, all the meetups, and I know kind of... You know, Facebook as well, they've opened up a Toronto office. They're getting involved. And, you know, they're like, whether it's just buying everyone food and drinks at a meetup or yeah. actually sending someone to speak, there's a lot of support for all of that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, coming from like in Montreal, when I live, I used to live in Montreal. And when I lived there, a lot of the design community was grassroots. It was, you know, there's one guy who like put together an indie conference. Basically, he invited um, Fabio Sasso, the guy who founded Abduzido, and James White, I think, to, to come speak. He rented out a room somewhere, and, you know, like 50 of us got into the room, and we saw these two guys speak, and the next year was a little bit bigger, and the third year was a bit bigger. And, um, same, I used to run a portfolio, night, that same exact thing. And we didn't really have anyone to, anyone to kind of come in and lend that muscle and give us some backing, so it was just whatever we could Whoever we could kind of hustle up some some free drinks from or like some T-shirts to give away or whoever we reached out to who was into speaking, mm-hmm. that was all we had. And so it's really nice to see just a lot more like muscle behind those initiatives. I think the flip side is then it kind of feels like they own everything.
0: Do you think that Toronto has like a specific design sensibility? Like when people think about, I'm just thinking like here in the States, I don't know what our perception is of canada when we think of design mm-hmm. just in general but I, th- I think it probably just breaks down into like the major cities you know vancouver montreal yeah you know, halifax etc mm-hmm. does toronto kind of have a specific sort of design feel for you
1: yeah i definitely i'll give you my impressions but also i was talking to um some new guy uh, i think drew henson i think his name is He's a really interesting, like just a fascinating guy with a background in design. Like he went to he went to study in Milan, like industrial design, but then switched to engineering. He's he's done everything. He now runs his own company, and mm-hmm. I spoke to him. I met him at an event. He was talking about how Toronto's design culture is so heavily influenced by. Um, we're not very far from the University of Waterloo, which is um you know if you think of like Blackberry Research and Motion, we're based out there, like a really really strong engineering school. And so there's this heavy engineering culture that has been influencing the design culture in Toronto, and and actually kind of matches Toronto's a city of like high rises and condos everywhere, and it's really grey and very like straight lines, and that's what I think of when I think of the the design scene is it's this very kind of techie, really like geometric sans serif, very severe. But then there's also this kind of Drake thing, right? This whole like <laughs> trap aesthetic that that somehow has infiltrated. So you get this. Scaffolding of really grey, really straight lines. And then this very kind of like loose illustration style, lots of like basketball references, you know, Toronto Raptors, lots of Drake references, lots of like neon colours and palm trees, the kind of Miami Vice thing. And it's really it's really fun how those two things play off each other in a way that is like very Toronto.
0: Trap culture in Toronto. I am intrigued. Yeah, you you gotta come check it out. It is it's strange
1: though. I, you know, especially if you're, if you're from Atlanta or if you live in, like, it is I weird. I mean, Even there, s-
0: there's definitely trap in Atlanta. That's what I'm yeah. saying. I'm intrigued by it.
1: <laughs> it. It's weird to me because you will, you'll hear, typically, like, walking down the street, you'll hear it before you see. You'll get the sound before the visual. And the visual is never what you expect. And I don't mean this in a way to, to like, but it's a guy in a suit who's, like, they, who works at a bank. And they're blasting it out of their headphones so loud that you can hear it. And they're like dancing down the street and like singing along, rapping along to the lyrics. And that's, you know, when I think Toronto, I think like it's super corporate, but everyone's also kind of edgy. Or at least they want to be edgy. Sometimes you can tell that like this person is not pulling this off. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the time, yeah, it's this, it's this mix of, like I said, it's the, it's the condos and Drake somehow coming together.
0: So you mentioned not going to design school. I know you went to school in Nova Scotia. I went to college. You went to St. Francis Xavier University. Did your research, man? I mean, from what I could find, and we'll talk about that. But what was your what was your time like there? What did you study?
1: Yeah, I um I went in for computer science, and I think that's you you studied that as well, um, if I remember correctly.
0: I started but, out studying, it, and then I switched to math.
1: Yeah, so I went in for computer science. I did two years of that, and then. I thought I was switching to fine arts. I minored in fine art and I thought I was switching my major to fine art and I got to the end of my third year and someone pulled me into Rome and like, listen, I know we know that we told you that we were going to get accreditation to give you a major in fine arts. It's not happening. You're not going to be able to get a major. You have one year left. In order to be able to graduate, we're going to need to find you a new major. Let's look at everything you've done. And I had a couple of years of Spanish in there and I think a year of French and they're like, what about if we switched you to modern languages and we sent you off to live in Mexico for a year? I'm like, yeah, let's do that. That, that sounds great. Um, what? <laughs> so going into, my, going into my final year of university, this is uh, 2006. Yeah, so it would have been, there was a World Cup happening. This is how I kind of, I tie everything to, to what sport, sports event was happening that year. <laughs> so it was the year Mexico got knocked out of the World Cup by Argentina. And I moved to Mexico the day that they got knocked out of the World Cup to Argentina. And the guy who was like responsible for all the exchange students was Mexican. Was this guy called Mario who's Mexican, but he was born in Argentina. And I just remember like he, he basically couldn't show his face publicly at the time. Wow. Um, but so I ended up yeah graduating with this weird hybrid linguistics, computer science arts degree, which is ironically exactly what I feel like I do now is a kind of work with computers and language to make art in a weird way.
0: I would imagine that is really jarring to get that far in your schooling and they're like, oh yeah, by the way, this whole thing you've been studying, you you can't get a degree
1: in that. It fits the way that I have lived my life up to this point. I'm sort of one, a very last minute kind of person. I find it really difficult to premeditate things. I'm kind of always improvising. But the other thing, uh, as of moving to Toronto, this is the the 15th place I've lived in, like town, city, village, whatever. Toronto is the 15th place I've, I've lived in, and I'm just, I'm used to change, like I'm used to flux. I don't understand this stability thing that everyone keeps raving about, like buying a house and living in it and raising your family in it. I'm sure it's wonderful, but I'm just, I'm used to change. And all the way through high school, I don't know if it's the same where you you went to school, but one of the schools or two of the schools that I went to growing up had this kind of elitism of smart kids studied science. And if you showed any academic promise, you had to be in science. Hmm. And so I kept on trying to change into not science and I kept being guided back into science. So I would switch into art. So I'd switch into, we had three streams at one of my schools. I think it was something like business science and art. I'd switch into business or or arts. I wanted to be an architect, I think at the time. And so I was doing a lot of like drawing and pre-architecture kind of classes. Mm -hmm. And then I would get the next year guided back into maths and physics. And my dad's an engineer. My mom's a cook. And so like, I like both, you know, the left brain, right brain thing. I, I relate to both sides. I like both of those things. But, I felt at school more of a pull towards the arts and I kept on getting back into sciences. And so that kind of flux is is something I'm used to.
0: No, I think when, I mean, when I went to high school, it was, Oh, I mean, I went to high school in the deep South in, in the nineties. So like it was, it was different in that. Hmm. What's the best way for me to put this So, so people can understand it. So I came about just in terms of like general schooling, In the generation after Bloody Sunday, so for people that are, I think, familiar with Selma, if they've seen the movie, for Mm -hmm. example, they're familiar with Bloody Sunday being this incident that happened in Selma, where marchers going from Selma to Montgomery were assaulted by police, etc., blah, blah, blah. I don't mean to gloss over it, but that's what happened. So I kind of came upon the generation after that, because then, you know, Voting Rights Act was started, and... Uh, You know, this this segregation was now against the law, at least, you know, by law, it was against the law. And so being in school at this time where, like, you had to try to shoehorn equality into a culture that was very used to being segregated was really weird. So, like, I went to, like, three or four different elementary schools. I went to two different middle schools. I didn't have, like, the same, I guess, unified schooling experience until I got to high school because... I was part of this gifted program when I was a kid and like they would bus us on different days to different schools. So there was my home school that I went to, not school at home, but like my my basic school that I went to for elementary school and then on like Tuesdays and Thursdays they would bus us across town to another school. And then on Fridays they would bus us to another school. And then those schools changed when I got to the 6th grade and they took us to uh, another school. It was a sort of weird thing. Seventh and eighth grade, I was at two different middle schools because we only had two in the city, east side and west side. So I was back and forth between those two. Then they unified into Selma Middle School in eighth grade.
1: Oh, man. <laughs> and
0: then they instituted like uniform, like a uniform dress code that we had to have from then all the way up to graduation. So like it was a lot of weird changes and stuff. To, I say all that to say in terms of like what. I think people were expected to go into. I know mm-hmm. I felt expected to go into something that would just make money because yeah. you know, Selma, Selma is a, it's a, it's a poor town in the middle of the country. And I, you know, grew up always kind of knowing about technology, doing little things here and there. And there's this, this sitcom that came on in the nineties here called a different world.
1: Mm-hmm. And, oh, I know all about Dwayne Wayne. Know,
0: okay. Yeah. And I wanted to be like Dwayne Wayne. I wanted we to be we were career. raised on that. Yeah, I wanted to be an engineer. I wanted to, you know, learn about computers and stuff. And so when I went to college, that was kind of my expectation that I would do that. And that got dashed, I think, the first semester. It was like, yeah, this is not for me. And I ended up switching over to math, which was sort of my second-ish choice. I really wanted to major in English. That was what I wanted to do. I had written from, like, I want to say maybe from, like, first grade all the way up until then. I had been published and everything. And I wanted to be a writer. And my mom was like, well, that's not going to make any money. Like, <laughs> you need to be thinking about something yeah. that's going to you know, like make you, you know, make some money. You know, writing is a good hobby. That's something to fall into or fall back on. But, like, it shouldn't be the main thing that you do. And math kind of ended up being that secondary thing because I was captain of the math fleets. In high school, right? I right. <laughs> like a P Calc and all that sort of stuff. So by
1: the give time, me so like, many flashbacks.
0: Yeah, so like by the time I got to college and I switched my major, the good thing was I got to graduate early because I already had enough credits coming in. But the other interesting thing about math is that it actually had some level of design into it, mm-hmm. uh, which I wasn't anticipating. Lots of sketching and drawing of conic solids and things like they would yeah, absolutely, and then we'd have to draw it. Um, eventually, we would, you know, do things with 3D modeling and Mathematica and stuff like that. More design than I expected, and really, math is something that like teaches you how to think.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, it's interesting when I talk to people that know that I'm a designer, but then they find out that I have a degree in math, and they're like, "How? I hate math." It's like, no, math, <laughs> math teaches you how to think. It teaches you balance yeah. and proportion and scale and it also just helps me also in writing into terms of like writing a proof a mathematical proof and writing a proposal for something mm-hmm. pretty much the same not really
1: yeah you, you sound so much like my dad right now <laughs> like my, my, my dad's the, the math the math nerd of the family and like he's yeah. like no but look, look at the poetry and the numbers i'm like oh wait, Dad. Yeah,
0: it's, it's pretty much it's yeah it's very similar it's very similar so mm-hmm.
1: uh, I, no i definitely yeah. agree and there's there's this whole thing um it's, I forget now, the studies m- must be over, over 10 years old, but this whole thing that, like, they're kind of clusters of aptitudes. So you get people with aptitudes for, like, uh, shapes and spatial awareness. Yeah. And that tends to tie in with, like, math aptitudes and linguistic aptitudes. So you kind of get those things as one cluster, which, again, kind of makes sense. Looking yeah. back at, at my life experience, that I've always, like been interested in patterns and trying to like solve them and you know fibonacci sequences and really nerdy stuff like that but also geometry and shapes yeah. and forms and then also language like the structure of language
0: that's so funny you mentioned that. i mean there first of all there's just a lot of beautiful design in math when you look at fractals and like the Mandelbrot set and all that sort of stuff yeah. you've got these you know tessellations patterns and stuff like really fun stuff that you can make with design and math which i know i sound like a like a high school math teacher right now saying that but it's true. Yeah, I love that stuff. It's great. So this this is my
1: beef with school though is that I feel like at least the schools that I went to and I you know I don't want to like say all schools are evil but I feel like the education systems that I I got to experience you know you go in with this natural genuine love of learning and it it kind of get it gets beat out of you. So I think about the books that I was forced to read for school. They were classics and they were incredible books and I hate all of them because we were made to read them. Mm -hmm. And I think about like just my relationship with with mathematics. Now, if I have to do it, I'll do it and I'll get into it and I'll actually start to enjoy it. But I just ran as far in the other other direction as possible because of the way school made it Mm seem to me. And I know that I have a lot of friends who feel the same way. Um, I used to make, just getting really into the weeds, I used to make kind of custom covers for all of my books just so I'd know they were mine because we all had the same books. So I would just get like colored paper, a couple of books, and I'd draw, I think it was anime characters or something at the time. And I'd do like custom lettering on my physics book. So it said physics on it. And I had this one teacher like call me up to the front of the class, confiscate my books, and rip the covers off them that I'd made and be like, you, you're not allowed to do You know, I went to a really, so I went to secondary school in Nigeria, which at the time had just come out of. I was there for the end of the military regime and the transition into democracy. Okay. And so it had this very regimented, it felt like being in school, felt like being in the army, you kind of woke up and you polished your boots and got inspected. And if your boots weren't polished well enough, you probably missed school that day and you did manual labor. And so we had to have our hair couldn't be past a certain length. You know, we had to cut our nails certain length, all that, all that jazz. And the teacher, I wasn't allowed to make custom covers for my books for some reason. And he couldn't like pull me aside quietly and say that he had to kind of embarrass me. And I think I have this really like deep seated authority issue now and like distrust of conformity from those experiences. But also it's just funny cause like now that's kind of what I do for a living. I would love to, not in a kind of vindictive way, but I'd love to go back to that school and just be like, Hey, teacher person. Like, I know you were really trying to discourage me from doing this, but I've been fortunate enough to, like, do this for a living now. So I'm grateful that you didn't beat me, or you didn't beat this passion out of me. Yeah.
0: It's funny. That sounds a little bit like uh, like Morehouse, at least in terms of how, like, strict and rigid they are about presentation. I think they've gotten more strict and rigid about it since I've left, but certainly it was they had those kinds of rules, especially when you're a freshman, like you had to yeah. wear a suit once a week and you, your hair couldn't be a certain style. And it was a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. And they're like
1: good reasons for, you know, teaching discipline, etc. They're good reasons for that. But some of it can feel oppressive.
0: I mean, given how expensive more houses, there's no good reason for that. They're just trying to, yeah. they're just trying to keep up a certain image. That's all. <laughs> exactly.
1: But yeah, I don't like I'm derailing. Sorry. I'm derailing. No, no,
0: no, no, no. So with the projects that you're, you're working on right now, how do you approach new projects i mean you're doing all this different stuff between Mm. the software agency you're working with other designers in toronto talk to me about your creative process
1: i'll give you two answers i'll give you like the textbook answer and then i'll give you the truth the textbook answer is that i find my work has become a lot more collaborative in the last two years when i moved to toronto the job i moved here for was kind of a come be our first designer, build out the design practice at this company, and then bring in, like, build a design team. And so that was, you know, my first time kind of understanding the work I do through the lens of a team and through the lens of other people. My my work became a lot more collaborative. We were a consulting company, so we're all client-facing. Everything started and ended with a conversation. You know, it wasn't like you go off and, like, hunch over the computer and do a bunch of Photoshop and then present it it was really designing and collaboration and that's kind of the way i've learned to work now is everything is really conversation based and so when a new project comes in say recently i worked on i worked on this app with actually a father and son like just two of them were kind of starting a business and i'll try and make sure i don't disclose any any information i shouldn't be but they were going into like a really interesting space like food and drink kind of space and they're based out in the in in the Bay Area. And so we just for the first couple of sessions just talked about like what the culture's like there with, with restaurants and dining and all of that kind of thing. And the work really came out of those conversations. I would do my own, I'd have like my own kind of test pool, but obviously we're all based in Canada, the culture's a little bit different. So I'd take my notes, I'd do my research, I take it back to them, like, hey, does this does this map onto the culture locally? And we kind of find the, the nuances and little like the rough edges around the work that I'd done. And then I'd do some wireframing or sketching, really rapid stuff so I could generate a lot of ideas, take that back to them. And at every step of the way, I don't, you know, I like that to not be surprised. So at every step of the way, I'm like showing something and we're having a discussion about it. We jump on a, you know, on a weekly call or a twice weekly call and we just go through all the stuff. I would get their input. They get, you know, we kind of back and forth feedback. So that's really the beginning, especially, is really front loaded with conversations. And then I mean, I'd like to do as much on paper as possible. I find that my uh, skills are declining as I'm getting older. I'm getting worse at like Sketch and Photoshop and all those things and Illustrator. I'm getting slower at that stuff. Mm-hmm. Or at least maybe I like my standard is getting higher. So I feel like I'm getting worse. I can't tell. And so I do as much on paper as I can these days. And then yeah, it's it's very much about that back and forth. I used to be very precious about like this is my work, don't don't even look over my shoulder kind of thing. <laughs> and now it's really I try and um I work on like Dropbox or Google Drive or whatever, and my files are there. You can my client can go into them, they can see what I'm doing. It also means I have to do the work. So I'm doing a lot of remote, so it's very easy to kinda of, like, like I'll do that tomorrow. Yeah. But if your client's on your drive and you know you're sending them like a, a daily email or something, then I keep myself accountable that way.
0: Yeah. One thing that I saw mentioned in your bio is that you are certified RGD. And I know we've got, you know, international listeners, we have folks here in the States. Mm -hmm. And when we talked about this a little bit before we started recording, you said it's sort of like Canada's AIGA. Can you sort of elaborate on like what RGD is and why this certification is important to mention?
1: The Association of Registered Graphic Designers of Canada, to give it its full name, RGD for short, is uh, an organization very much like the AIGA that exists really to to kind of keep the standards high for design and also to be a resource to designers, to be a resource to people looking to hire designers. So they've got you know directory of their designers, but they've also got resources like the importance of hiring a certain kind of designer for a certain kind of project or why spec work is, can be a bad thing or why spec work can not be in the interests of the person commissioning design. Uh, They provide a lot of resources. They organize two large conferences every year, one here in Toronto, one in Vancouver. There's also an organization, I forget the name of the other one, blanking on it now, but essentially the RGD was started here on the East and then out in the West, There was this other organization. They are slowly coming together. I think they're planning to create a joint certification, which I don't know if that means I'm going to have to, because the process was really long. It's like a month-long process to get certified. I'm hoping that it carries over. Like you have to submit a portfolio, then you've got to write a bunch of rationales for five projects that you're doing. Then you do a test, which is they test you on a bunch of things from ethics to typography to like graphic design fundamentals to process. It's really to accessibility, it's really thorough. Wow. And you you have to score a certain amount in each of those sections. Otherwise you might have to either reset the test or like do an in-person interview and kind of speak to those points. Mm-hmm. And there's different levels of certification. There's like a student member, there's a provisional member and then there's what what I have, which is like the certified RGD uh, to do that, you have to have, I think it's something like seven or ten years combined education plus work experience. So they mean business. It's basically, it's a stamp of approval for anyone who's looking to hire a designer that these people have been very thoroughly vetted. Yeah, and it also, once you become a member, there's all these perks from like um, benefits and insurance and that kind of stuff to just discounts at a bunch of places. The main thing for me, um, and I know we might be talking about this a little bit later, was the sense of legitimacy. I did not study design formally. I kind of, my career has not really, I've kind of taken a side road. So I've never worked at like a huge, massive agency or been kind of in the design mainstream. And having the certification was proof to myself as much as anything that like, I know what I'm doing even though I've learned everything off a bunch of tutorials or just from messing around myself, it actually is in line with what the professors and the academies are teaching. And so that was the main reason I wanted to get certified so badly. The second reason was for the community a bit. Uh, The RGD organizes a bunch of events. They do a lot of mentorship. What's really funny is because I'm coming in on the senior side of things. I'm actually getting involved on the leadership side in terms of like, reviewing portfolios and helping mentor younger designers which is not what i thought would happen going in i was like oh i'm gonna get a bunch of guidance from people but they also help out with help you know proposals and stuff and i was looking to maybe hire an intern or something and i didn't i couldn't navigate all the rules around insurance health insurance and safety and you know all that kind of stuff and the rgd stepped in and like hey you're not doing a, a manually intensive job there's actually a like codes for all the different jobs and they found the one for graphic design. And like, you don't have to have WSIB, which is the insurance board because you fall under this category. And so it's a really great resource for that kind of stuff.
0: Wow. It sounds like having that certification, I mean, aside from just the personal legitimacy it gives you, it sounds like it's also respected and maybe I'm wrong here, but it sounds like it's respected by employers and clients and stuff having that certification like it means something it carry some weight
1: yeah i mean they're doing a really good job they're small you know all these organizations are always run you know there's a core team of like eight people doing all the work right and they're a really small organization but they're doing great work going out to the public and to businesses and to insurance companies and all these other people and advocating on behalf of the design community mm-hmm. creating these resources they've, they've made this like thick 300 page book kind of manual that has things from contracts to if you're going to be running a firm, how much money you should be pulling in per employee to copyright. And they, yeah, like they're doing such a, I can't say enough good things about them. And for anyone who ha- might be listening, who's Canadian and maybe on the fence about it, I would definitely say like, at least reach out to them, have a conversation with someone from, from our about how they might be able to help you further your career goals. Because they've, they've done so much for me. In the It's been less than a year since I've been a member.
0: Wow. That's dope. That's, I mean, when I think about, I don't want to rag on AIGA, but I wish that AIGA held more weight mm-hmm. in terms of being a member. Not saying that being a member is not a good thing. It is. But I don't think it's as respected as like what you're saying. If you put certified RGD, an employer might look at that. And they know this means you come to the table with, a certain level of experience and skill etc i feel like here if you just say you're a member of aiga it just means you you paid the monthly fee and then, yeah you know, and i think a
1: part of it right is just the perks of being small like from what i can understand the aiga is a huge huge organization yes
0: it's like over ten thousand members. members has been around for over 100 years it's pretty big
1: yeah and i'm sure like it benefits and i don't mean this in a But I'm sure it benefits like the rock stars, the Debbie Millmans and and the, you know, that that echelon. (laughs) I'm sure like they are able to get a lot out of it. But it's really difficult for an organization at that scale to cater to all of its members the same way. Yeah. And the RGD is still pretty tiny, you know, to the point where I think I know, personally know, half of the core team. I've met them or like they've emailed me at some point. And, you know, again, because it started out as a regional thing, I feel like being in Toronto, I get the full force of the RGD. So I don't want to say that, you know, if you're out in Winnipeg or somewhere, it's going to be the same thing. I feel like I get the the most exposure because I'm so close to them. They're literally down the street from me. Their office is maybe 20 minutes away. But I definitely think that the effort that they're making, it goes further because they're, they're so much smaller, right? Like it, it stretches a lot further. Um, it's just you know, speaking like to a science nerd, it's just kind of the physics of it. If, if your range of, if your reach is a little smaller, your impact is a little higher.
0: Yeah, no, that's true. I agree with that. Yeah. I just kind of wish AIGA had that, I don't know, Mm -hmm. bigger, more weighty kind of, you know, sort of feel to it in terms of being a member. Not that being a member isn't great. I've been a member for, I don't know, maybe like five years now? I've, wow. I don't think it's been that long. Maybe four years. Uh, and it's great. I've done a lot of volunteering. I think I've been yeah. known because I've been doing the volunteering. I think if I was just a member and didn't go to a single event, mm-hmm. it wouldn't mean anything. Like, I could say, oh, I'm a member of AIGA. And it's like, oh, that's that's something. Yeah. I don't know if it would mean that much.
1: I've seen that you've had a few a few brushes with AIGA. Um, mm-hmm. some, some of them have been a bit more high-profile. Yeah, and, yeah, I, I that that. <laughs> and I think that that's, I think that's important. Though I think it's important that like the members are, are speaking up and speaking out. And if if you want the AIGA to, to carry more weight and to do more for you, you know they have to know that they have to be aware. Yeah. I was just to say we um in Ontario just had an election last week, and it's notable because just the way I grew up, moving all the time, I've never actually been legal to vote anywhere in my life until last Thursday. I think it was, it was the first time I could vote, and so I did. You know, and I was very idealistic about it. I'm like, I'm gonna read everyone's platform, and I'm gonna pick the one that, you know, the whole thing. And then I don't know how much you've heard about the fact that Ontario has a Trump-like figure, kind of populist figure. I don't wanna, I'm not gonna sling anymore to say anything. It's just a person whose strategy has been very similar, mm-hmm. and he and he won the election. And, but the, the response that my friends have had to that has been really encouraging, which is, well, it doesn't actually, not that it doesn't matter, of course it does matter who's in power, but it, it's, not, it's not the end of the story. You know, we as citizens are here to demand things of our government and to keep them accountable to us. That's their job, right? And and it's been really encouraging to hear my friends saying that. Mm-hmm. And I feel the same with like an ed, you know, it does matter that they're maybe not pulling the weight that, that you would like them to. But then the whole point of membership is that then it's your job to speak out about the things that you want and to make sure that they are listening to you and that they are accountable to you. So, uh, you know, I, I definitely appreciate that from what I saw, um, I think it was just a bunch of tweets maybe, but I saw that the, someone from the IGA invited you to continue the conversation. And hopefully that, that's led to something productive. And I know that, again, larger organizations can – there could be more inertia and more bureaucracy, which means that things don't move as quickly. But hopefully people are listening to you and they're actually taking your, your points into into account.
0: I mean, yeah, we'll say that.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to be optimistic, man.
0: I appreciate that. No, no. Yeah, this this, we'll
1: this, this is not that. the conversation I have privately, like – this is podcast
0: enough right now. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, when I joined back in 20, I want to say it was 2014, uh, Rick Grafe was the the executive director at the time. And I remember him specifically telling me that, you know, in terms of being able to speak up as a member, it's like, if you're a paid member, the way that he put it was that no one member has any level of seniority over another, like we're all mm-hmm. equal. And so if there's something that you feel like you have to say bring it up and we'll listen to it. You know, we're not going to say, Oh, well you're just a lower tier member. What do you care? Like, no, every member is important. And I agreed with that until I started volunteering for the organization. I was like, no, there's definitely like strata and hierarchy and politics. And it differs from working with national to working with different chapters. I mean, I have my own kind of sorted history with my local chapter here in Atlanta so, like, I know that that is not necessarily the case, but I do feel like if you are a paying member, you need to kind of speak up and say, you know, if if you don't feel like the organization is serving you, speak up or leave. Yeah, There's absolutely. No Nobody is putting a gun to your, I mean, being a, being, you can be a designer in this country and not be a member of AIGA and it's okay.
1: It is yeah, totally absolutely. I, f- but, I feel the same way. You know, yeah. if I'm going to keep paying my dues to any organization I'm a member of, RGD or anything else, it needs to be worth it for me personally. And I would hope that I would have the option, not just of leaving, not just of like voting with my feet kind of thing, but also of making change happen. Yeah. Whether it's getting, you know, volunteering on a committee that I feel passionate about, or like I know that someone from the RGD, uh, they send out this monthly email and they have kind of stories from members. And I know that one of the members, she started an event. I think she it was like a book club or something like an, an RGD book club and there's just something that she felt really passionate about and this is just her as a member she's not she doesn't have a seat on the board she's like hey we should do a book club they gave her the license to get that off the ground and you know now it's a it's a fully functioning thing mm-hmm. so I think that that level of agency it's on the AIGA to make sure that that exists that they're not just paying lip service to it that like I've worked at places where, you know, my boss has been like, hey, yeah, we value your input. Like, come give us suggestions and we'll improve. And they didn't follow up on that. So it's on the organization to actually do what they say that they're going to do. But then it's on the members to, to participate, right? Well,
0: no, I agree. And I mean, I don't get me wrong. I'm very fortunate to be able to have the opportunity to have a personal audience with the current executive director of AIGA if I need to. Like, if there's something I need <laughs> to bring up. I'm very fortunate to be able to just like give her a call or send her an email and she's like, "Yeah, what's up?" Every member doesn't have that same level of yeah. like, access. So, I realize the privilege that I have in doing that and so because of that, especially what I'm trying to do with Provision Path, you know, I try mm-hmm. to make sure that hopefully some of the things that I'm saying or or some of the things that I'm noticing and bringing up are at least trickling down to other chapters or Affecting, mm-hmm. you know, kind of just helping the organization at a at yeah. a larger level. You know, it's sort of that that saying of a was it a rising tide raises all ships or something? Exactly. Like, yeah, yeah, something like that.
1: Something. To that and page. just to you know, again, not to to be the dead horse, but I remember uh, one of the people that you interviewed in the last couple of months, whose name I'm blanking on, but he had taught at SVA. Uh, he taught a class with Jennifer ritner mm-hmm. who I I got to I got to meet very briefly. She spoke on a panel in Toronto last November at this RGD conference. And she made this really, really solid point that has kind of stuck with me, which is that our industry is not, or really any industry, but specifically our industry is not this one sentient being, right? It's not like an entity of itself. It consists of all these practitioners. Mm -hmm. And if the industry is moving in a certain way, if the industry is trending in a certain way, if the industry is doing something, it's because we're doing it and obviously there are you know there are these other forces at play that are outside any one individual but ultimately when you look at any industry she was talking about you know whether the design industry is ethical or not and, and she was saying you know yes that these bodies have a responsibility but ultimately like if you think about the idea that um the human body's made up of a bunch of systems made up of a bunch of cells and now it's coming out that actually we have all this bacteria and they're acting kind of independently. Some of the time there isn't really the, at the highest level, there's only some agency coming from that level. It's really happening all the way down. So again, members are super important. They need to, they need to make sure that they're kind of safeguarding their own interests and that they represent, you know, they're speaking out about their own in, interests.
0: I agree. Yeah. I think the person you're talking about is Raphael Smith. Yes. She's
1: yes. A, yeah, so, yeah,
0: Adjunct professor at SVA. Yeah, exactly. Yep. See, I remember. I remember. Yeah, you, you've got that memory, man.
1: Um, <laughs> I'm just gonna start reeling off. It's actually really funny. I somehow like as I was, I, I think I told you, I was like studying for this for this podcast, and so like just listening to a bunch. And every person I listen to, I'm like, yeah, I agree with that. I want to say something about that in mind. Um, the guy, <laughs> I forget his name, but the guy who uh, his studio is called, we should do it all or something like that. Jonathan and Johnson. yeah, he um. Right at the beginning of that episode, he reeled off this Robert Heinlein quote, the specialization is for insects quote. Yeah, I've had that like basically pinned to my wall for the last 10 years. Really? Um, and so he, he, sta- he starts going into it. And I'm like, yes, just like, that's what I'm all about. And then you had Douglas Davis on not too long ago. I'm currently reading his book. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, yeah, there are so many parallels in previous episodes. And it just, yeah, it made me feel like I must be doing something right if all these people are saying similar things to the thoughts that I'm having right now.
0: Oh, great minds think alike. Exactly. So I do want to, you know, mention something here for people that are listening who might not know this. This interview has been several years in the making. So I want to talk about imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. You know, I sort of, you know, alluded to this earlier, you know, as I was sort of putting things together for the interview, I'm like, I really can't find that much stuff about you. I can find stuff about your work, but I was like, I can't really find anything about like you as a person. Talk to me about that. I know when we sort of spoke initially, and I don't you know, hopefully I'm not speaking out of turn by saying no, it's okay. that, You know, when we spoke initially, you were saying, you know, that you know, even doing this kind of work sometimes you kind of struggle with like feelings of inadequacy or imposter syndrome. Is that something that is sort of still a part of your process? Yeah, it's a
1: it's it's a huge part. So as, when you were talking about like the creative process, I, I gave you the textbook, it's all about conversation and we move through the stages I work on, on on paper. Yeah. Here's the more accurate version of that. Usually I get it's I get inbound. It's a referral or an email or something. Someone has seen something that I did in the past that they really like and they wanna they wanna jam, they wanna create something together, they wanna make something similar. And a lot of the time will be, you know, I saw this like this World Cup thing you did, and that's super cool, this illustration project, or I saw the branding that you did for this museum, or I saw like this conference that you designed, and I have a conference coming up and I wanna, wanna work on that. Meanwhile, I'm thinking, I hate that project. Like that's the worst thing I've ever done. And I just kind of like I send the email back and I'm like, you know, yeah, yeah let's 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 do it. We set up a call. And the call goes really well. Everyone gets very excited. We're all, you know, by the end of that call, it's like, I'm looking forward to, to doing this thing with you. Like, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be the best thing ever. And then I go into an existential crisis immediately after that phone call. Like, What if this is the time that like, I can't hit the deadline. The work is awful. I, something happens and it just, it doesn't go. And the existential crisis lasts until about 72 hours before the deadline which is when the work starts. And I'm sorry to anyone who is thinking about employing me who is listening to this. I promise yours will be different. I promise I will do the work on time. No, you heard the thing I said earlier about like working from a shared Google Drive. It's actually to preempt this. Okay. And so I will get it done in the crunch. Somehow I was that kid who would write the paper the night before at school. Somehow that system, I've never grown out of it. I get it done in the crunch there'll be this big sigh of relief. And then maybe three months later, I'll finally get paid and rinse and repeat. And it's a very stressful thing to, so as as I'm getting older, I'm realizing that like my body physically can't handle this cycle. I'm starting to hack, hack myself out of it slowly, but it is a process. Hmm. What really helped was listening to Christoph Nieman talk. So his episode of Abstract, but he's also given a few talks where he brings this up. He is, to my mind, the last person who should have imposter syndrome. He seems to do a New Yorker cover every month. And like, they're all just mind blowingly genius. The guy is just incredible. But he talks about the fact that not only does he feel that he's not good enough, he acknowledges, he's like, I'm not good enough. You know, there are, there are these kids, there's these 17 year old kids that smoke me, that murder me in different ways in different fields. And, I recently had an experience where it went from being imposter syndrome to being like an imposter reality where I couldn't execute mm-hmm. on something. And that was probably the most liberating thing that's happened in my in my professional work, where it was like, okay, so actually yeah, you are an imposter, so what? And Christopher Newman's advice is the only thing you can do that about that is to work hard and get better, is to continue to practice. Like we talk about design as a practice. I know some of my weaker areas. For example, color theory is something that I'm terrible at. I went out and I got uh, Joseph Albers' interaction of color, and I'm working on it. Uh, Typography is something that, when you, to a general audience, most designers are like really, really friggin' good at typography. To type nerds, most designers suck at typography. (laughs) Like, what, you know, there's this weird, like, the gap between good and very good is huge. And I've decided I want to be really good at typography and I'm just good. And I don't know how to bridge that gap and I'm working on it. And so this has been my process is just identify weaknesses, work on them. The whole thing about Michael Jordan, apparently shooting was his weakness as a, as a student. Like he was good at a bunch of other things, but his shooting was pretty terrible. Mm-hmm. And by the time he got to the NBA, he was one of the best in that particular category. I like the idea of, calling out your weaknesses. And so going back to this RGD thing, I got graded in a, on a bunch of different areas and I basically just pulled that data and went, yeah, these are the three things I'm working on next year. But as far as the like psychology of imposter syndrome to get back into actually doing this interview, when you reached out, I remember vividly, vividly there were two things. The first was that I was like, my work's not that great. I don't feel like, just as a designer, I don't feel like I should be giving advice or telling anyone what to do, or even really talking publicly about what I do, I feel like I make it up as I go along and it's all very derivative. And I'm basically copying other people's work and you should be interviewing them. That was the first thing. And the second thing was specifically with kind of, and I don't want to say the black experience, because I don't think there's just one, but you know, with black experiences in the States, Mm -hmm. I felt like a total imposter to speak to that. I've had a really, really weird experience with my own blackness in that I was raised, like I said, traveling all the time. And I was reintroduced to my home culture around the age of like 10. I was about eight when I moved back. But I I went to international school all the way up till secondary school. And so only at about 10, 11 was I reintroduced to like a really homogenous African culture. And Trevor Noah says it really well in his autobiography. He talks about how it is easier for an outsider to be an insider than for an insider to be an outsider. So I had these kind of four or five years of feeling like a complete outsider in my own culture where I had to navigate the fact that because I looked and, and for all intents and purposes was like everyone else, but then behaved very differently, that I was being called out as being Wrong as being somehow broken. Mm. And I had to kind of navigate that for myself. And it took a really long time. And I spoke to a couple of friends immediately after I got that email. And I was just like, what the hell? What is happening? I can't do this interview. And the same people I spoke to actually when five years later I decided to do it. And they were just like, it's, they thought it was super important that that voice was one of the voices in the mix talking about the Black experiences or the Black experience that like it was. It was important that every strain and every variant of black experience get represented in the conversation. And I agreed with that, which is one of the reasons I kind of resolved to have this conversation.
0: Oh, no, I'm sorry. I thought you were going to keep going after that. Uh, (laughs) No, no, but I appreciate that. I mean, you know, yeah,
1: like uh, we're all different. And the more exposed we can be to to the ways that we're different and the ways that we're not different. The more we can be accepting of that, the more we can kind of celebrate our individuality rather than be challenged by it.
0: Right. I mean, and when I reached out to you, I mean, that was early in the Revision Path days. I want to say it was maybe like April of 2013. And we had just started Revision Path in February of 2013. I had no idea what all of this was going to look like or Mm -hmm. turn into or even go this long, quite frankly. So I could understand that trepidation because I got a lot of no's when I was starting this out for people. They were like, wait, you're doing what? No, I don't think so. Because there was nothing, you know, that really, I guess they had a a basis of comparison for. But also, you know, now that I've done it for this long, I hope what Revision Path illustrates is this multifarious view of Blackness, like, throughout Mm -hmm. the diaspora. It's not just in the United States. It's not even just in major cities in the U.S. It's all throughout. It's, you know, it's in Canada, it's in the Caribbean, it's in Europe, it's throughout Africa. And I want to get to as many places, you know, further out as I can. I hope at some point to be able to speak to people like Black designers in Asia, you know, in South America. Like, there's a lot to unpack, you know. Certainly, I think as the world is changing, as our geopolitics are changing, it's important to examine what that looks like from a lot of different viewpoints. Mm-hmm. And
1: I have to say, I think you've, you've done a really fantastic job with that. I was listening to, again, like I'm going to play name that episode, the <laughs> furniture designer was Jomo. based out of, yeah. of Africa.
0: Joe Motarikou.
1: Um, yeah. Yeah. I was listening to his episode. I really, really loved that episode. And he was talking about like getting these invitations to go present, I think in Milan or somewhere in Italy and just kind of being, he didn't spin it this way, but I was listening to it as almost a fish out of water story and just being like, yeah, I can totally relate to that going into these areas where there isn't a lot of precedent. There isn't really, there isn't any much like example to look at and reference and kind of making it up as you go along. I'm trying to navigate now like this weird installation, contemporary art world as someone who didn't has never done that. And, and I'm not going to end up doing that the way that other contemporary artists would, my like my crew my collective so to speak is a bunch of designers and we're essentially bringing design sensibilities into that world that's been super refreshing for me it's just this kind of make it up as you go along can, way can of doing about, things.
0: can you talk about that a little bit more this kind of navigating the art world
1: yeah yeah very briefly uh, or maybe less briefly yeah, i guess a friend of mine i used to work uh, one of my first ever jobs was in a video game studio i was making kind of UI but also video game art like environments and that kind of stuff. I did that for about three years. A buddy of mine, Sergio, a guy from Colombia, he started out as a tester, later on was a sound designer at this company. We both left around the same time. And then a year after I moved to Toronto, he and his fiance moved here as well. He wasn't really finding a lot of sound design gigs here in Toronto. And so he just came up to me one day and he's like, listen, I've been doing some research. There's a lot of like grant money and a lot of just a lot of opportunity available to create art installations. And I think that would be a really interesting thing for us to collaborate on, you know, with his experience in sound design and programming and engineering, and then his fiance is an electrical engineer, and then me on the visual side. And so we found this call. There was an outdoor festival all winter. They wanted to do like light-based art pieces that were gonna survive. Canadian winter, four months of being out in the snow. And this is the first thing we decided to do for some strange reason. And we pitched an installation to them having never, we didn't know how we were going to make it. We just pitched an idea. And this is where 10 years of doing design work really came in handy. I'm like, if if they're going to give the people with the strongest proposals the opportunity, then we're going to get an opportunity because I know how to write a proposal. And so we pitched this thing that was really solid. They accepted it. And they gave us, I think, five grand or something to go build. It's a giant crystal with a bunch of sensors and LEDs in it that responds to not just people coming and interacting it, but also like the sounds of its environment. And all, you know, we, we have this very lofty ambition of um, if you've ever seen like the Superman film, just kind of like the, the Fortress of Solitude, it's one of those crystals. And I just reached out to a bunch of people, friends of mine, architects and artists and everyone I knew who like maybe would know how to do this and just begged for advice. Uh, In the end, we got connected to a bunch of fabrication studios in in the city and they kept on like, none of them could, it was super tight budget, it was also super tight turnaround. None of them could help us out, but they were all super nice and they'd refer us to the next person and that person refers to the next person. And eventually we found a sculptor in Calgary, out in the West, who builds props for theater and he helped us build our crystal. And they shipped it over and it arrived the day that like all the media and the minister of tourism were supposed to come and look at all the art pieces. And we were on site soldering or not soldering, but installing things and plugging things in and deep into the night. And finally it worked and it was up and it didn't break down all winter and people, kids loved it, especially, and people got to see it and we got featured in a few, you know, blogs and uh, breakfast TV and that kind of stuff. So that was a lot longer than I was hoping for it to be, <laughs> but the 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 point about design was that we kind of approached this very much as a design project. So, the crystal had a brand, it had a persona, it had a color space, it had its own fonts that you know we were using certain typefaces. It had these kind of we looked at it as like an app, right? Mm-hmm. So, it had three features, three core features, um, and we would build them in almost like an agile way where. We needed to get the, the main feature, which is when people are near it, it's kind of taking in audio levels and translating that to different light patterns. So it takes pitch and it translates that to color and it takes like decibel level and it translates that to intensity. And so that was the main feature. And then we built a second feature one where there's no one around it emits this kind of beacon so that it is kind of letting you know it's there and that you need to come closer. The third feature was that we decided the the crystal should kind of get shy when there's too many people around it. So it shuts down and it kind of, there are these red patches that show up on it. And so that's the way we built it. And this is very, you know, if you have built any kind of software, you'll be familiar with that process. And we would build one thing, we test it, make sure it didn't break, build the next thing. The next thing would break the first thing. So we'd have to go back and debug. It's very, very similar to the way, the way I work on software or any, you know, where I work on branding as well. And that's the, the cool thing that we discovered out this, because this is the way that Sergio writes music, is that ultimately the thing that you do doesn't change when you work across disciplines. You always do the, you know, you do, you, you do the work that you are used to doing, whether that's like this very structured kind of from sketch to wireframe to prototype to high fidelity, or it's like, let's just do everything all at the same time. It doesn't matter if I'm doing fine art stuff, if I'm doing branding stuff i'm doing like software or i'm doing illustration i find that i work the same way i always work
0: so from that installation are you planning on doing future ones
1: yeah so right around the time we did that i have a client that i do some design work for or some illustration work for and they're in they're like an urban development real estate company and they had the space they didn't really know what they were going to do with it but it was people can go into the space for a while, so they were using it as a window gallery. And through my my connections there, we got invited to do an installation in their window gallery. So we did the second piece, and the thing that I did for them was kind of a big hoarding on a construction site, which is around the corner from the illustration or the installation that we did. And then there's this other, The Crystal, which is maybe 10 minutes down the road. And so all of a sudden we had this like presence in this neighborhood. And just from having three pieces in the same general area over a few months, we started to get calls from people or emails from people, festivals and stuff. And then we got really busy with real work and we kind of let that go for a while. And as of maybe a week or two ago, there's like five or six of us now that are really interested in over the summer finding some time to Really jam on what we can do with this. There's a, there's a big technology conference, FITC, that happens in Toronto every year. Where they have a bunch of on-site installations. Uh-huh. And we're really interested in being part of the next programming for that. So we have like meetings coming up just to discuss what we do there. I don't know if Atlanta has like a Nuit Blanche, which is like an all-night. You know, Everything's open from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m., something like that, 6 to 6 maybe. And people just come out all night and they go see a bunch of cool stuff. So, we're planning on being involved in that. And then, yeah, just slowly, slowly tiptoeing our way into this. I find that it's a very, um, these different spaces can be, it's back to that outsider insider thing. These different spaces can be really welcoming to people who aren't from that universe. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Toronto's getting a new contemporary art gallery, it's opening up, I think, in September. And in that gallery, they're going to have one of the floors of the gallery is going to be studio space for about 30 people. And we got invited to participate, like to have a studio there, which is super exciting because I'm I'm so I'm looking forward to being around that energy of other people making stuff and making like physical things that I can see and touch because that's not the universe I come from. But I've got to meet just a few people that are going to be in that space and they've been so welcoming and so open to having a group of designers kind of descend on this, this gallery and maybe shake things up a little bit.
0: Do you have like a dream project or anything that you'd love to put together? It sounds like a lot of this work you're doing aside from you working across multiple disciplines <laughs> also involves a lot of creativity.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I feel like I'm really good at, at having pipe dreams, but there are, <laughs> co- there, there are a couple of things that I think are more that could happen. So in the in the pipe dream, tr- pipe dream space, I always wanted to have like a, a publication i really wanted to do magazines when i first got into design and that was when magazines were folding left right and center they were all going out of business and it feels like you know the the independent magazine wave has kind of revived that that industry so that's something that we're talking decades from now i'd love to to have a little publication that like just maybe isn't like a business that necessarily sustains a bunch of people's welfare but it can sustain itself on the kind of experiential side, and this kind of dream, I guess, where I was in a like an old kind of Victorian house that had three or four stories and just multiple rooms on each floor. And as you're kind of walking through the house, each house is, uh, each room, I should preface this by saying I grew up, I kind of had synesthesia growing up. So I used to say things to my parents, like, I smell red, or like, this music is really round. And they'd be like, no, like, you can't smell colors. Like, that doesn't make any sense. And I don't have that anymore, but in this dream, I'd go into a room and let's say all the, the red room, everything in the red room would be red. And it had a texture and it had a, a smell to it and it had a soundtrack to it. And it also had certain rules. So like in the red room, everyone walks backwards or in the orange room. You can only answer a question with another question. It's kind of like it's very kind of Willy Wonka. But yeah, I had this like ambition to create something like that, this full house scale installation where it maybe isn't exactly the synesthesia thing, but it's this idea of you open a door and you don't know what's going to be behind it. It's going to be different from the last door you opened. I have spoken to a few friends about that, people who are kind of in a friend of mine who runs a museum, a friend who's an architect, and they have given me the validation that the idea is not completely stupid. So maybe that's something that in a little while when there are resources time-wise and a space and things like that, we have access to, it becomes a little bit more feasible. Maybe that's something I'd love to pursue. Or if anyone listening wants to steal it and do it, like if you have the capacity to make this happen, I won't begrudge you. Like you can have it. It'd, it'd be <laughs> nice if you said that you have got it from this one guy on Revision Path one time. But like you can say, I just want it to exist in the world. So if someone listening has the means to make this happen, by all means, the one that I'm actively working towards is... This idea of representing, you know, cryptocurrency kind of had a huge moment last year. And so this project called Money Tree, which is essentially, it's a virtual forest where each tree is mapped to the health of a cryptocurrency. So if you think about blockchain, just crazy fluctuation, Bitcoin, crazy fluctuations last year, you'd literally see that as this big giant tree growing and dying and growing and dying and leaves falling and all that kind of stuff and fruit hanging off it and making that into this kind of virtual forest. That's one of my like pipe dream, but also actively working on it.
0: I like that. I like—I mean, both of those ideas sound pretty dope.
1: Yeah, and that one is, you know, that's a super, like, I don't feel like I have to change anything from the design methodology to, to execute on that project. I've spoken to a bunch of developers about it, and they're like, most contemporary art doesn't make sense to me. This one, I feel like, yeah, there's a logic behind it. It's being driven by an algorithm. I love it. Yeah. And so I feel like there's this, definitely there's this interest that I have to, to put design the way that we practice it, the way I practice it and the people I know practice it into that space, into that context and not have to make it kind of, I think about a lot of contemporary art as being a little bit self-indulgent sometimes or a bit obscured by like fancy language. And, you know, you'll, you'll read the description of a piece and it'll talk about semiotics and dialectics. And I kind of get lost in that stuff and i really like this idea of saying actually what we're doing here is it's almost a visualizer it's 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 almost like an infographic right a living infographic of the oh, yeah. state of cryptocurrency but it's also a bit of a commentary on like the natural world and the effects that our behavior has cuz you know we're doing this to the physical world as well we're doing this to like real forests whether it's mining or wood or whatever and so there's it's kind of drawing parallels between the physical world and the natural world and the digital space
0: now one thing that i think has been a a common thread as we've sort of had this conversation is you've mentioned that you have kind of bounced around a lot in terms of just growing up working as a designer you've lived in a bunch of different places i'm certainly picked up on the british accent throughout kind of the entire <laughs> you know this entire conversation i'm curious to know who would you have been if you stayed in the uk
1: oh that's really funny so the first thing is if i would stayed in england i would probably sound a bit more like this the accent that i'm using now is kind of a trying to fit in in canada i do more of the question tone thing where my voice goes up at the end of sentences. and actually when when i go back to london it takes a few like a few hours to kind of reset but my friends are just like oh my god you sound so american (laughs) and it, it is this funny thing right so the first thing is that i think probably had i stayed in the uk um i would i would have had that what's the word i'm looking for you know that stability of a lot of my friends would be the same people i knew when i was really young a lot of my you know i'd be going to i'd be going to like the same restaurant that i went to and i'd have like a a regular order that they would know when I walked in. And some of those things that I do miss that sound like they're really nice that I never got to experience. So just the idea of like having being a regular at like a restaurant or a coffee shop or a bar or something and walking in and having them know your order. There's this place in Montreal when I used to live there that did $2 taco Tuesdays. So I used to go with a friend pretty much every Tuesday and we sat at the bar and we got to know our bartender Victoria really well to the point where Like she would greet us coming in and she knew what we wanted. And that was really great. I feel like that's a weird thing to want in life, but that's one of the few things that I want in life is just to go into a place and they know what I want. But had I not bounced around, I think I probably wouldn't have bounced around career-wise either. I might be working as an engineer. I might be working for an oil company, probably Shell, which wouldn't have necessarily been as like creatively fulfilling but it would have been would have afforded me a lot of the you know the things that i really like in terms of like travel working for a big multinational gives you a lot of opportunity to do that i think the one thing that would have been different definitely is i wouldn't have been exposed to so many different cultures and i think that i might have actually been a little bit less open to things i might i might have had a much more narrow view of things because of that so in a way, I'm grateful that didn't happen. There are a lot of good things that would have come out of that stability. But the one thing I definitely know for sure is that I wouldn't be as understanding of difference and the, the way different people are. That's one thing that's been beaten into me for bounce, bouncing around so much.
0: Do you feel creatively satisfied now? Like, Do you feel fulfilled?
1: With the oh, no, never. No, absolutely <laughs> I guess i like, and this is, a, this is a really bad habit. I hate a lot of my work. And it takes like ten minutes. Like I said, I made this big this like big illustration thing for that real estate company last summer. And I was I wasn't in town when it went up. So I came back and I walked over to see it to take pictures of it. And there's this really like I felt really proud of what I'd done. And there's a Mexican restaurant right next door to it and they were out like setting up stuff for the day and I went to talk to them and they were like, Yeah, this piece just went up, it's really cool and I'm like, That it's me, I did I did that. That was there's this like real sense of happiness. And then I took a bunch of pictures and some video of it and I went home and before I got back to my apartment, all of that was gone, just like gone. Like it took less than 10 minutes for that feeling of accomplishment to subside. And I know that that means that on the good side, I'm always going to be hungry to keep pushing myself, but it makes creative satisfaction kind of out of the question. Going back to the Christoph Neiman thing, I'm content with my discontent. I've made peace with the idea that like it's going to be really difficult for me to feel like everything I'm doing now is everything I want to be doing. And that's okay.
0: To that end, where do you see yourself in the next five years? What kind of work would you like to be doing?
1: Is this aspirationally or realistically?
0: However you want to take it.
1: Aspirationally, uh, I was talking to a friend about this not too long ago I was asking her if she has career goals and she had this really great kind of analogy for it she's like I don't think of goals necessarily I think of like bumpers so I think of my career as this bowling lane and I have bumpers on the side of the bowling lane so that the, the ball doesn't end up in the gutter on the sides and as long as I'm like my bumpers are keeping me in the middle of the you know on the lane I'm happy and so she has like bumpers for the kind of work she doesn't want to be doing, or what she does want to be doing, the financial side of it, stress levels, people that she's working with. And I'm trying to adopt that way of thinking. So there are a couple of pieces of five years from now, I would love to be working still in a diversified way where I'm, I'm touching digital and physical. I think those are both kind of important to my work right now. I would love to be working spatially, as I think has come through from the last few minutes, I would love to be meeting people who are doing really inspiring work and kind of getting to collaborate with them. And, you know, this sounds really lazy, but like almost piggybacking off their greatness and having them pull me up to higher levels of execution, and higher levels of thinking. I think that's the main one for me is like, I've got to start meeting really inspiring people. Not that I haven't, you know, if any friends are listening, you're great, but I'd like to meet more really inspiring people. And then the third piece of this is I have felt for the last maybe 18 months that it's not going to be very easy for me to get this level of fulfillment at someone else's company. Like it's going to take a very particular kind of employer to have this role carved out or to let me carve this role out within their space. So I think that the chances of me starting my own thing in the next five years are quite high. And that's really scary because just as a as a freelancer, I know how how much of a financial risk it can be to then say you're gonna also be accountable for other people's welfare. And you've run a studio, so you know so but I think that I've been trying to run away from that. I've I've been like, no, no I'm just gonna I'm just gonna get a really senior position at some really great company. And they'll give me a lot of, like a really long rope to kind of do the things that I'm interested in, or maybe I'll just do it on the side. But the longer I sit with that issue, the more it feels like I am two or three years away from opening up shop. And then that starts to get really interesting in, in terms of who who's coming on that journey with me. So the people that I'm working with right now, are they going to be partners in this? Are they going to be other people partnering in this? What does that look like? That's kind of... I see myself like struggling with that issue in the next five years.
0: Well, just to, you know, wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online?
1: My URL, I'm in the process of maybe kind of not rebranding, but changing all my URLs and socials right now. My website's designed by enough.com and all of my socials are designed by enough. I'm looking into, I, I got the domain nuff.design. It's just nice and tidy. I don't know what that then means for like social media handles, but I will point towards the new ones whenever, whenever I make that change. So right now, yeah, feel free to go on Design By right Enough. I have to pre-warn you, like, I'm awful at social media. I barely tweet. I'm going to tweet about doing this interview in like a month, maybe. <laughs> and so if you're expecting like daily updates, bear with me. I'm still working on that stuff.
0: Oh, no problem. No problem with that. Well, enough. I have to say this has been quite a conversation. I know, again, like I said, it's been a while for us to even sort of get this going. But I feel like we did so many deep dives on a number of different subjects. Of course, we got to learn more about you and about your work and what you're doing. But also kind of speaking to these, you know, feelings that I think maybe a lot of people that are listening may have, but have never really articulated as it relates to how they feel about their work or you know, even sort of, you know, kind of the feelings of, of you know, imposter syndrome and such mm-hmm. as it relates to what is my place in the world with the work that I'm doing and things like that. I feel like it's really relatable to talk about those things, even at the level of work that you're doing and certainly the amount of activity that you've got going on. It speaks to your your character as well as to your skill level. So I just want to thank you for being candid and for sharing that information yeah. and of course for, for coming on the show. I appreciate it.
1: I'm I'm really, really glad we could connect and, and do this. And again, I'm sorry it took so long and I'm very appreciative and grateful of the work that you're doing, like I've said many times in the past, but also just to that last point, I, I definitely want to make sure that anyone who's listening to this understands and, and knows that there is space for you to carve your own place, you know, the place that is the exact shape and size of what you are trying to do in the world there is the potential for that, however big or small or ridiculous that might seem. And it may take a while, but if that's the path that you think you need to be on, if you think you need to step away from the herd or go on the the kind of go off-road a little bit, that possibility exists for everybody. And I'm only able to say this now that I'm seeing the road open up a little bit for me, but I had people telling me that 10 years ago that I wasn't listening to. And I wish I had been listening to them. So if there's any one thing that you take away from this listening, that's it's that.
0: All right. Again, thank you for coming on the show, man. I appreciate it. Thank
1: you, Maurice. It's for real.
0: Thoughts of love and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Nuff and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Nuff and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, Glitch, Google Design, and MailChimp. With a community of over 2 billion people, the design team at Facebook works on a diverse range of problems. Everything Facebook designs is done at scale, so research, content strategy, data, and other factors are a huge part of how they work. Sound interesting? Then learn more about Facebook Design and what they do at Facebook.com forward slash design. Glitch is the friendly community where you'll build the web app of your dreams. Now, if you've seen Glitch, you might think, oh, this kind of looks like a toy or something. But let me tell you, it's not. It runs on the exact same infrastructure and engine that the best developers in the world use to run their apps. And it's all built around a friendly community of coders, designers, developers, artists, activists, and educators. Basically, people just like you. So get started on making something awesome today at Glitch.com. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's largest marketing automation platform. They support millions of customers from small e-commerce shops to big online retailers, and they support the creative community as well. MailChimp really gives you the marketing tools to be yourself on a bigger stage. Visit MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better emails. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Andre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you liked this episode, then please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a minute or two. It really helps more people learn about the show, not just here in the U.S., but internationally as well. Um, It helps the show by bumping us up in the rankings there for design podcasts. And I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Now, if you're listening to this and you want to hear next week's episode a little early, then you should become our patron over at Patreon. Now more than ever, Revision Path needs your support to make sure that stories about black designers and creatives in our field are being told in their own words. So if you support us, if you support what we're doing, if you support our mission, then just go to patreon.com forward slash revision and pledge today. For just $5 a month, you can get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming articles and interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.